But we've got a lot to cover today, so we're going to dive right in. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Facts are our friends. Isn't that true? Facts are our friends. Let me give you an example. Let's say you are a fan of the Minnesota Vikings, and you were there on December 17th at U.S. Bank Stadium. You were there when we fell behind to the Indianapolis Colts. It looked like there was no way that we could come back, but we did. We overcame the single biggest deficit in NFL history, and we won that game. So imagine that's you. And now, fast forward to January 1st, let's say you're that same Vikings fan, now you're at Lambeau Field. (laughs) And you're watching the Vikings versus the Packers, and they're behind, again, at halftime. Now, facts are your friends. Because just imagine now, you're sitting next to a Packer fan, and you've got a net worth of exactly $1 million dollars. This Packer fan wants to make you a bet of exactly $1 million that we will not, the Vikings will not come back from that deficit. What you believe about the Vikings and their capability, you want that to be anchored in reality in that moment. Because if you think they always come back, we beat the Packers before, you could be out a lot of money, right? (laughs) When the stakes are high... Facts are your friends. When the stakes go up, what you believe matters. It matters. And people get into trouble all the time. All the time when they think what they believe is true. And what they think they see, they think they're seeing clearly, but they're not seeing it as clearly as they think they are. When you go all in on an overly simplistic understanding and the stakes are high, that can really get you in trouble. Because did the Vikings win against Green Bay? (laughs) Not exactly. (laughs) No, they didn't. And on a vastly, infinitely more important level, today we want to talk not only what are you staking your money on, but your life, your eternity. What are you staking it on? What standards are you using to discern truth? What standards are you using when it, when it comes to discern between right and wrong? Where are your definitions coming from? When it comes to essentials like love and compassion, justice, family, or even truth. Last week, when we got together, we issued a challenge. Yet as we begin a new year, let's elevate. Let's elevate our thinking. And let's ask questions that really matter instead of just obsessing over things that don't. So may I offer to you, for your consideration, a question that is far more significant than most people realize. Here's here's the question that we're going to look at today. What do you know about the Jesus movement and why should you care? That is a significant question, fundamental question. There's a lot at stake with this question. And when there's a lot on the line, facts are our friends. Um, that's one of the reasons I really like books like this. I haven't had a chance to get too deep into it. I just heard about this book. Um, it's called Dominion. It's from, uh, I was recommended to me by my assistant, Mindy. The reason that books like this have my attention, because there's not many of them like this. In the endorsements in this book, it's everyone from Tim Keller to The Guardian to The New York Times to Christianity Today to The Daily Mail. All of them endorse this book. You don't see that group agreeing on almost anything. 
what is it about, about this that caught, you know, that had them all coming together in agreement? This book is about how the Christian revolution changed the world. And all of those folks said, yeah, it did do what you just said it did. Tim Keller says this in his endorsement. He says, the author of that book punctures common myths about Christianity and secularism in every chapter. In no way does he let the church off the hook for its innumerable failures, nor will he let secular people live with the illusion that their values are just self-evident, the result of reason and scientific investigation. And I love statements like this. If both sides would allow themselves to be chastened, future conversations would be much more fruitful and more tethered to reality. Simplistic and inaccurate thinking can get you into trouble in everything from sports betting to relationships to politics to racism to more. And how many of you have seen simplistic two-dimensional thinking when it comes to Christianity? I've, I've seen so much of it. If you want to build your life on a firm foundation, if you want to make important decisions that are grounded in truth, this is a series for you. Series for you. Last week, when we launched this brand new series called Why Jesus, we, we said that this is a series that's really in two parts. The second half of this series, which we'll get into starting in a couple weeks, in the second half of the series, we're going to explore the claims that are made about Jesus and by Jesus Claims that are of the highest magnitude. We're going to dig into those claims. What we're doing in the first half of this series is we're exploring why do we believe those claims are credible. That's what we're looking at right now. Well, last week we started ground level. Ground level. Was Jesus even a real person? That's where we started this series. You know, and we saw from just even a quick glance at world history that it reveals that Jesus of Nazareth, he impacted world history like a meteorite. Even someone like Bart Ehrman, a scholar who does not believe that the resurrection happened, he doesn't even believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but even he, he's convinced Jesus is real. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he says this, Jesus existed, and those vocal persons who deny it do so not because they've considered the evidence with the dispassionate eye of the historian, but because they've got some other agenda that this denial serves. Something happened. Something happened 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, and it was so monumental that it divided history in two. And apparently, for the first time in history, it inspired an evangelistic missionary movement unlike anything the world had ever seen. That's what we're going to talk about today, this Jesus movement. Today we're going to look at a few passages from history's most carefully vetted account of the Jesus movement. We call it the book of Acts. And it's a sequel. It's a sequel to another book by the same author. It was written by a physician and historian named Luke. And here's what one scholar says about this second volume. It provides a forward-looking continuity. The importance of such continuity cannot be overestimated. In other words, the book of Acts is a continuation of the book of Luke. It's a continuation that builds on astounding claims like miracles, like a resurrection. So this is saying, okay, we're going to use that as a starting point. Now here's what comes next after 
Jesus. All right, if you have your Bible with you, let's open up to Acts chapter 1. We're going to start with verses 4 through 5. If you don't have a Bible at home, I'd encourage you, go right now, hit pause on this, go right now to Bible.com. They've got a wonderful free Bible app that you can download. I think half a billion people have done that, this app. So I'd encourage you to take a look. All right, here we go. Uh, Acts chapter, what do you say? Chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Now this takes place, that we're about to read, this takes place after Jesus was executed and after he appeared again. We're going to look at verses 4 through 5. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, in Greek, this was interesting. Do you see that phrase, while he was staying with them? In Greek, literally, that translates as taking salt with them. And I love that choice of language because what they're doing right here in Acts early on, they're establishing, okay, this is not they are remembering Jesus. This is not they, they have a sense that he's still with them spiritually. This is not even that, that here's some kind of spirit. This is Jesus, they're saying, this claim, he's physically with them. He was dead. He's with them. We're taking salt. We're eating with Jesus. He's back. And now Jesus, he's promising that something big, something else big is about to happen. Let's go to verse 8. This verse will be really familiar to many of you. Jesus says to these people that are taking salt with him, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and where? All Judea and where else? And Samaria, and where else? To the ends of the earth. This little group of people are going to be witnesses in that city, but not just there. This movement's going to expand. It's going to go into Judea. It's going to go to Samaria. It's going to go to the very ends of the earth. This, this Acts 1.8 that we just read, this is really the outline for the rest of the book of Acts. This is what happens in the rest of the book. They become witnesses right there in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and it spread to the other side of the known world at that time. And people are still trying to figure out how did that happen? How could that possibly have happened? Here's an example of the kind of thing that you find when people were trying to research this event. Christianity started in the place it was least likely to succeed where it would have been easiest to disprove. Jerusalem, three days after Jesus' death. Rather than engage in historical debate, works of popular fiction like the Vinci Code make claims that Christianity came to prominence because of Constantine in AD 325. The reality is that the preaching of the resurrection, it turned the world upside down right from the beginning. You know, it's really interesting doing research on this because I was hearing so many things that I had heard before, so many claims that I had heard, but reading the historians, they're like, no, it actually wasn't like that. I'd heard so many times before that Christianity's influence was really tied to Constantine, that Christianity didn't take off until then. It is far more complicated than that. In fact, in the research, I came across this about 250 years before Constantine, Nero, I never put Nero on the timeline. He was 250 years before Constantine. And back then, he was openly persecuting Christians. 
he, he, it was horrible. Crucifying them, wrapping them in animal skins, turning dogs on them, rolling them in pitch, using them as torches. But what happened? The movement continued to grow, even under that. Here's another, another fact. 200 years before Constantine, we find writings from the Roman Empire, writings describing this new type of threat like they'd never faced before to the empire and the empire's gods. It was a movement made up of men and women from very different sociological economic backgrounds, this movement of these Christians. And it kept growing and growing. This is all pre-Constantine. And the numbers are astounding. The numbers are astounding. By the year 400 AD, nearly half of the Roman Empire claimed allegiance to Christianity. That's 30 million people. Astounding. All right, back to our text. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This tells of that event that Jesus promised was going to happen. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Many people consider this to be the birth of the church this to be the birthday of the church. And if so, it shares a birthday with a very intriguing relative, this festival known as Pentecost. Pentecost had been around a long time. It was a festival of covenant renewal with a long, long history. Jewish people, what they would do is they'd come from all over the known world and make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where this was happening, to commemorate it. Pentecost occurred 50 days after Passover. So those two were connected. And Pentecost was a time when God's people would remember God's great salvation and it would offer, the people would offer their first fruits, remember that, of their harvest. What a season for the church to share a birthday with. It's almost as if there was a divine being orchestrating this all. Because you think about the Passover connection, here these people are recognizing Jesus is our Passover lamb, our savior. And this is 50 days days later on Pentecost, and they themselves now are going to be those first fruits in what would prove to be a global harvest. Prophecies that Luke had recorded in his gospel, they were coming to pass. Like this prophecy that John the Baptist made, that John would baptize with water, but he said that Christ would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When the Holy Spirit descends on the early church, according to Luke, they're able to speak in foreign languages. Here's why that seems to be particularly serendipitous. Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound of them all speaking these languages, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now remember, thousands of people were coming to Jerusalem. Why? Because it was Pentecost. And here's an example of God working all things for good 
all things for good. Hundreds of years earlier, the Holy Land had been conquered by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and it carried Jewish people off into captivity. So at that time, there were Jewish people living all over the known world. And if you're looking on your scripture, just read this list of names that comes next. I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try to read all these. One of the sources I looked at, this is really interesting, mentioned that this list you find right here in Acts 2, it is the most comprehensive ancient catalog of Jewish settlements that you find anywhere in ancient writing. And there's archaeological evidence that backs up that there were Jewish Christians at those sites. Fascinating. So at Pentecost, the Spirit lit this flame and a worldwide movement was born as these people began taking this off to their, to their homes, these things that they had heard and seen. Now, one of the distinctives of this Christian movement that was born is how they treated one another. This is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 45. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, And awe came on every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was fun. So I had a thought when I was rereading this. I never had this thought before. So I'm rereading this, and I'm researching what the historians said about the world in that time. And I'm like, this whole phrase, you ever heard the phrase going to church? Going to church? In those days, going to church, that was something that the non-Christians did. Let me explain that. Apparently, almost all the cultures, they had their gods, their idols. Most people had multiple ones of them. And what would you do? You would go to the temple. You would go to the idol. You would go to the shrine. You would go to the particular site where that particular god or idol was because you would go to them, you would do your religion there, and then you would go back home. Christianity was radically different. Radically different. If you're taking notes, I'd like you to write this down. There has never been a movement like Christianity. Never been then. Christianity was not a go-to, the idol, religion. Completely different. It was holistic. It was a way of life. It was a complete worldview. It was a way of doing community. They devoted themselves, we just read this, devoted themselves to teaching about not multiple gods, one God, one God. They pooled their resources And they looked out for one another. They participated in koinonia. It's translated here in English as fellowship. We don't have a word that that captures koinonia. It's this rich form of fellowship and community. They broke bread together, which meant they were sharing meals, but also commemorating Holy Communion. And they came together regularly to pray. This was not like the religions of its day. It was like a family like a growing family made up of brothers and sisters of the same father, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And it spread. 
It spread even in the face of persecution. And this is important to note. One of the things that historians were pointing out here was how a lot of times we think two-dimensional. We think all or nothing. The persecution against Christians really depended on where you were and when you were. There wasn't a consistent um, try to extinguish all of them that was carried out equally in all parts of the empire. It depended on where you were and and when you were. But it is clear there were times, depending on where you were and when you were, it was harsh. It was intense, like some of those examples I gave earlier. Now, here's something else that's interesting. Some folks have done the math. How do you get from that small group in the upper room to 30 million? How does Christianity grow? and become half of the Roman Empire by the year 400. I'm told that it would have only taken two new converts per 100 Christians per year. So apparently, Christianity was able to spread primarily, not by big rallies. Outside of Paul, we really don't have many examples of that at all. It didn't happen by threats. It happened by people living this out, and others become curious because they hadn't seen anything like that. Tell me more. That's how it spread. Now, when I was in school, in the rare times when Christianity even came up in school, it was very, very two-dimensional. I heard about how Christians gained political power during Constantine. I heard about monks, crusades, inquisitions, Puritans, witch trials, and scarlet letters. Almost everything I heard outside of church was negative. I never was taught history like I'm about to read you now. Again, this is coming from a non-believer. This is coming from somebody who doesn't even believe the resurrection, these things. He says this about Christianity. Looking back on world history, if one word could encapsulate the common social, political, and personal ethic of the time, it would be dominance. Dominance. In a, remember, this is what Christianity is born into, a world where dominance is the word. In a culture of dominance, those with power are expected to assert their will over those who are weaker. Rulers are to dominate their subjects, patrons their clients, masters their slaves, men their women. It was common sense, millennia-old view that virtually everyone accepted and shared, including the weak and the marginalized. With such an ideology, one would not expect to find government welfare programs to assist weaker members of society, the poor, the homeless, the hungry, the oppressed. One would not expect to find hospitals to assist the sick, injured, or dying. One would not expect to find private institutions of charity designed to help those in need. The Roman world did not have such things. Christians, however, advocated a different ideology. Leaders of the Christian church preached and urged an ethic of love and service. One person was not more important than the other. All were the same footing before God. The master more, no more significant than the slave, the patron than the, the patron than the client, the husband than the wife, the powerful than the weak. Christians sometimes, indeed many times, spectacularly failed to match their pious sentiments with concrete actions, or even more, acted in ways contrary to their stated ideals. But the ideals nonetheless were ensconced in their tradition, widely and publicly proclaimed by the leaders of the movement in ways not extensively found elsewhere in Roman society. Listen to this summary. It was Christianity that became dominant and once dominant, advocated for an ideology not of dominance, but of what? Love and service. This affected the history of the West in ways that simply 
cannot be calculated. Here's an example. Here's an example from source documents. This is how disorienting this was as a movement for the powerful people of the day. This is a quote from a Roman Empire who Roman Empire Roman Emperor Roman Emperor who came after Constantine. After Constantine. He advocated, let's go back to the old ways, let's go back to the idols. But he knew that's gonna be a tough sell. And here's why. This is from something he wrote. It's disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, that everyone can see our people lack aid from us. That's what they were saying about the Christians back then. As Americans, we've been brought up with concepts like self-evident truth, civil rights, separation of church and state. There are historians who are going to tell you that prior to the Enlightenment, Almost nobody was arguing for these things. The only people that were, the notable exceptions, were early Christian apologists. There's never been a movement like Christianity. When you make that statement, you're not just making that statement because you want to believe it. You're not making it out of a two-dimensional understanding of reality. When you go back and you look at history, there's never been a movement like this. Christians believe Every person bears the image of God. That was revolutionary. Biblical values became today's self-evident truths. The application of biblical principles, it was the catalyst for a massive paradigm shift when it came to civil rights, healthcare, education. The movement brought about unprecedented checks and balances for power. Christianity's influence is seen in medicine, education, art, literature, music, philosophy, and law. Christian ethics provide personal guardrails in areas where people often experience the most pain and regret. Christians have been at the forefront of public education, health care, women's rights, child advocacy, anti-slavery movements. Here's a quote from the book I referenced earlier that had so much widespread support. Today, as the flood tide of Western power and influence ebbs, the illusions that European and American liberals risk left being stranded. Much of what they've been, they've sought to cast as universal stands exposed as never having been anything of the kind. Secularism owes its existence to the medieval papacy. Humanism derives ultimately from the claims made in the Bible that humans are made in God's image, that his son died equally for everyone, that there's no, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. I love this next couple sentences. Repeatedly, like a great earthquake. Christianity has sent reverberations across the world that human beings have rights, that they're born equal, that they are owed sustenance and shelter and refuge from persecution. These were never self-evident truths. Now, while it's important to point those things out, it's also very, very, very important to note this next piece that I encourage you to write down. There has never been a movement that's free from sin. Can I get an amen to that? If the movement involves people, the movement involves sin. You're going to find sin in the Republican Party. You're going to find sin in the Democratic Party. You're going to find sin in the Libertarian Party. You're going to find sin at a birthday party. 
Right? It's just, it's there. You're going to find sin in business, in entertainment, education, nonprofits. You're going to find sin in every skin tone, every continent, every generation. You'll find sin in every age group. You're going to find sin in every economic level and every gender. There has never been a movement or even a subgrouping of people free from sin. And when it comes to Christianity, there are people who identify as Christian who have made the same kinds of mistakes, people who have fallen short, and people who have been involved in horrific crimes, horrific crimes, the same kind of crimes you find anywhere else. Now, this became especially true when the church gained more and more influence in the 4th century and beyond. What you began to see is the church leaders started acting like those Roman emperors. They started to act less and less like the founder of their movement and more and more like other powerful people in history, using their power to feed their greed, to crush their enemies, to act on desires that our scriptures put guardrails around, even taking verses in the Bible out of context to support those actions. I've been watching my news feed. This is really interesting. So on my news feed, when I set it up the first time, I was able to check what boxes I want, you know, to get news feed from. One of the boxes was Christianity. I'm like, that's cool. I checked that box. I've been checking that feed almost every day since Christmas. Do you know how many positive stories I've seen in that feed about Christianity? Since Christmas. The closest we've come are some neutral stories about the Pope, his passing, Pope Benedict, his passing. And then there were some, and I'm not making this up, there were some stats from Christian McCaffrey, the football player, in that scene. (laughs) I'm not making that up. That was in there. But that's it. But you know what I did find every day, multiple stories of? Just horrible stories. Horrible stories. Stories about scandals, religious leaders abusing kids, activists who believe God is on their side when it comes to politics, when it comes to positions. Stories about denominations that are imploding, church attendance that's plummeting, trauma people are experiencing in churches. And then as a church insider, I mean, I don't don't need the news feed. The number of personal stories that I've heard over the years of people who've been hurt, really hurt horrendously by people identified as Christians, it's shocking, just shocking. In a world where those are the stories that make the headlines, Here's an important reminder in light of the things that we've learned here today from Philip Yancey. He says this, those who condemn the church for its blind spots do so by the gospel principles, arguing for the very moral values that the gospel originally set loose on the world. Our world is filled with examples of people who identify as Christian, but they're doing the opposite of what Jesus modeled and taught. And as a result, more and more people are coming away from that. Here's what I see. I see only negative things about Christians. What should I believe? I should believe what I I see. And many people are being led to believe by what they see. That Christianity, it is based on myths. It's used as a way to hurt people, control people, instead of this movement that changed the world. And as a result of that, many are rejecting or even opposing the very movement that's giving them those values by which they're judging. In light of that, here's my challenge. Here's my challenge for us as we bring our time together to a close. Our world could use another on-fire Christian. 
And I'm glad we got a mm-hmm and an amen to that. I'm glad because when I was a teen, when I, and I converted to Christianity, this was a phrase we use, on fire Christian. It, it, for us, it meant somebody who's, they're not just playing the game. They're not just going through the motions like so many people were, but this meant like, no, I, I'm all in on this. So we call them on fire Christians. But then we got into the nineties and I'm like, ah, that just sounds so dated on fire. <laughs> what happened this week? I'm, I'm reading Pentecost. Maybe that's not such a bad analogy after all, since it's biblical that these people were gathered expectantly and the Holy Spirit came on them like tongues of fire. Fire is, what an image. Fire creates steel. Come on. Fire refines gold. Fire provides light. Fire provides warmth. Our world could use more people who are allowing the Holy Spirit to burn away greed, to burn away selfishness and hate and jealousy. Our world could use more people who are filled with passion and compassion and strength and warmth and light. So right here, right now, the world could use another one or two. Let's pray that we ourselves will be those people, step by step, day by day, imperfect people, but people who welcome the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, making us more like Jesus every day. Let's become the kind of people who are inspiring, inspiring the kind of curiosity that the world once saw when it saw that movement. Let's pray to that end. Then we're going to seal our time together with a song that reminds us of the one who founded our movement and the day that the Church of Christ was born. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you that there were people who were recording things along the way so that our world has a record of what you did, what your spirit did, how you kept your promises, that we would become your witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even on the other side of the planet here in Minnesota, or wherever people are that are watching this. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us by descending upon us, filling us, or filling us again, Fill us with your fire. Burn away that is which is not of you. Fill us with warmth, light. Refine us. Strengthen us. And help us to become the people that you call us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.